0: Greetings from King's Church, King Ifano, down in Christchurch. I bring their love and uh, greetings to you all. Um, I actually bring you greetings too from the Nelson Church, from Mosaic Community Church in Nelson. I was there last weekend with them and had the most wonderful time with them and their leaders. And uh, we we had a great time together, and I told them that I was coming up to see you. So they said to me, could you please send our greetings to you as well? So please receive greetings from King's Church in Christchurch, from the Nelson Church, Mosaic Community Church there in Nelson. And by the way, our friend uh, and uh, one of our elders, uh, Matthew Pratt, is actually in Auckland this morning. So I kind of bring you greetings from Auckland as well. So, our cha- so greetings, everybody. It's, this is family, and we're in this together. And it's so wonderful to be able to share these times together. Um, the, title got enti- the talk this morning got entitled Ken's Sexuality Talk. So if you think you're here this morning for you to hear about all my sexuality, um, we could be here for some time. Um, but uh, we, we'll, we will do what, we, do the best that we possibly can. Um, just to say, really, that I'm probably the last person who should be standing in front of you. In much many people's views, I'm really the very last person who should be talking about gender and sexuality. Um, I am white. I'm middle-aged. Um, I'm middle-class. I'm married. I'm a heterosexual male. Um, uh, worse than that, I'm a Christian. Uh, And even worse than that, I'm a Christian who believes that the Bible is relevant and authoritative in the world today. So really, in many people's eyes, I'm just like the worst person at all, ever, to talk upon this subject. And I I don't often start a talk by apologizing, but may I apologize just as we start. Some of the things that we're going to be talking about today uh, are not black and white. And reality is that emotions run very high for people in these areas, because it touches people's very identity. And um, therefore, emotions run extremely high And it's easy for somebody like me or somebody like you, when you're talking to your friends and relatives and your schools and your places of work, it's very easy for us to use the wrong terminology. Uh, The terminology seems to be changing all the time. I'm really struggling to keep up with the terminology. But it's easy to use the wrong terminology or to give the wrong impression. So can I just apologize for the things I might say um, right at the start or the impression that I might give right from the start? And if... If, if I offend you in any way or if anything I say uh, just doesn't come across the proper way, could you play it, please assume the best um, that I'm trying hard to do this right and trying to say the things that are really uh, important here? Some people, not least Christians, can be very aggressive and judgmental when it comes to issues of sexuality and gender. Um, it can be quite nasty at times. And if you're here this morning and you have felt misunderstood or you're here this morning and you have felt judged or shame, could you please forgive us? Because that's not what we want for you. That's not the tone that we want to bring uh, to these subjects whatsoever. That's not our attitude. In my lifetime, and I'm, I know I'm an old man, but um, in my, I'm not that old really, I, in my lifetime, i am And even in very recent years, very recent years, attitudes in the world at large, uh, especially in the West, in the developed world, have changed extremely, dramatically on the issue of sexuality and morality and gender. Uh, The whole issue of there being uh, non-binary gender, uh, something other than male and female, uh, was not even an issue. Uh, in the public space a few years ago. But such has been the change, the dramatic change uh, in our society that uh, what was a standard view is no longer there. And this is the view. view. This, This is the view we must have and must take. And so strong is it, so controlling in the media and in people's minds is this new view that we have in front of us, is that you're no longer allowed to even question that. Um, even to, to question it, let uh, alone disagree with it, is just such, such a thing you just can't do. You, If you try to, even if you try to raise any issues at all, you are immediately shouted down as bigoted, as homophobic, as this is hate speech. And that is really unfortunate. Because what has happened in... In this recent era, is that the worldview, the morality, the sexual morality that was prevalent in the Western world for many, many generations, for maybe even hundreds of years, has given way to a new worldview, a new position that has been taken, especially in the West. And some of the things I think we're very grateful, because that old worldview, that old way things used to be, not all of it was great wasn't always helpful. And I think all of us feel, oh, thank goodness, that attitude has changed. But this new perspective, this new worldview that is out there, um, has, as I say, has changed so very rapidly, but it is a case of a worldview that has changed. Are there issues in there of morality, of sexual morality, of gender, of sexuality? Yes, there are, but what has changed more than just our views on those specific subjects, is a whole worldview. That's what has changed in the last 50 uh, or so years. A worldview is a frame through which we interpret the world and how we form our judgments. It's the, the lens, as it were, that we look through to see things as they are, and understand things. It's our set of presuppositions. It's the stuff that we believe already about the big things of life. It's what causes us to see the things that we see as they are. And everybody has a worldview. I know that, especially in places like uh, New Zealand, we we think that our worldview is the worldview. But it's not. It is a worldview, and everybody has their understanding of how the world is and how it functions. The the big questions that frame our worldview are things like, does God exist? Uh, What is the universe? What reason is there for the life that we see in the world? Who are human beings? Who am I? Uh, Why am I here? What is wrong with the world? And how do we solve the problems of the world? Are all the kind of presuppositions that we bring to our worldview. And as mainstream, orthodox, Bible-believing Christians, do we have views on gender and sexuality and sexual morality? Absolutely we do. But I think what is really helpful for us, before we dive into those specific issues, is to see why it is that we frame our world as we do and why we see it in the way that we see it. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to take my watch off and I'm going to try and keep a track of time because what we're going to do is we're going to go through the Bible. I mean, all of it. Not every chapter, praise God, because that would take a very long time. But we're going to go through the Bible, and the early chapters we're going to just spend a little bit of time on. Why? Because we need to see why we believe what we believe about the issues of gender and sexuality and sexual morality. Okay? So here we go. Big breath, everyone. You ready? Here we go. We're going to start where? At the beginning. Of course we do. Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. Three points really quickly. Number one, there is a God. There is a God. There is, we are not alone in the universe. We are not self-determining people. There is an instigator behind all things. There is an originator behind all things. There is someone bigger than us. One who is definitive. One who is an absolute. There is a God. Okay? Second point. I'm doing this real quick, right? Real quick. Second point is this. God is that creator. What did it say? It said the world, the earth, was formless and empty and darkness was over the surface of the deep. Formless and empty. Tohu, bohu. Tohu, bohu. Formless, empty. That's what the world was like, formless and empty. It was darkness and God said, let there be light. But it was formless and empty. And God acted to deal with the formlessness and the emptiness of the world. That's what he did, and that's what he's, what he's doing. God is creator. There is someone there who knows us intimately, who knows what we're about, who was there before we were, and he understands you. And knows what's best for you. We have a creator. Third point I want to make, doing this real quick. God is community. Now, I'm not suggesting here in Genesis 1, 1 to 3, we see a fully formed trinity. We don't. We don't, but what we do see is God. God, the initiator. God, the authoritative one. And the spirit of God was hovering over the water. Oh, oh! there's more to this. Mm, mm. Then God, verse 3, says, Let there be. God said there was a word of God. Now, that's not a fully formed son of God as we understand the word of God to be. But what we see here, right at the beginning, is God in community acting as community. It's quite important, actually. It's quite an important thing. God is not a singularity. God is community. Yeah? Got it? Right. Then we get to the days of creation. Now, I can't go on to explain. We could spend all day. We could spend weeks talking about the days of creation. But what I want to point out is this, that the first, second, and third day, God separated, separated night, uh, night, uh, uh, light and darkness. He separated day and night. He separated sea and sky. He separated land and water. On the three days, he did the bohu issue. He brought structure to it. He dealt with the, the sense of this being formless. And on the second lot of three days, they are parallel to the first three days. So on the first day, God separated darkness and light. And on the fourth day, he made the sun and the moon to rule over the day and to rule over the night. On the second day, he separated water, the sky, and sea. And on the, the fifth day, he filled the sky and the sea. And on the sixth day, he separated land and the water. Uh, uh, sorry, on the third day, he separated land and water. On the sixth day, he filled. So he was forming, and then he was filling. Hallelujah. He was doing, dealing with the formlessness and the emptiness. What is the point of me making all of this? Is that the universe is not random. It's not here by chance. It is ordered. It's beautiful. It's full of life. It's mysterious. 95% of the world, the universe, we don't know what it is. It's made up of stuff that's not matter. We struggle with knowing what the 5% matter is. But 95% is dark matter and dark energy, and we don't even know what that is. But what we see is that it was ordered, that God dealt with it. He wasn't arbitrary. So then we come on to what Pete dealt with last week, the sixth day when God created human beings. Then God said, verse 26, Let us make mankind in our own image, in our likeness, so that he may rule over the fish of the sea, etc., etc. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and increase in number. Now, what, what's to say here? Point one, we are created beings. There is someone who knows best behind it all. There's somebody who understands us all as we are. We are created. The second thing to say is that we are created in God's image. Now, Pete dealt with this last week, but if I can just add this one other picture. In the ancient world, when a king from a far distant land came and conquered a new area, a new place, he came and he conquered it, and then he set up a statue in that new land, and then he left and went home to his far and distant palace. That Statue was called an image. And that's the what stands behind the word here, image and likeness. What did it do? Well, the, the image was like the king in all his majesty and all his glory. It's sort of, it was like him. It kind of, if it looked totally different, it wouldn't work. It had to be like him. That image also was there to say to all those people who were living in that land, remember there is a king over you. Remember, he might be in a far and distant land, but there is a king who rules over you. We are made in God's image. What does that mean? It means we're like him. There are many ways in which we might be like him, but there's something of a resemblance, a likeness, it says, between us and God. It means that we have dignity because we are made, we have royal dignity because of who we are and how we have been made. But we also are here to represent that king and say, he rules over this land. Do do you understand that? We are made in his image. And then thirdly, we are male and female. Now, some people, I've read people who say that when it said that God made male and female, he made them male and female. There was a one, in Genesis 1, one andrologist's non-sexual, male-female person. And I want to say that is not what it says. It says he made them male and female. You don't see it in the English version, but there's lots of male and female through the days of creation. Opposites, the same thing but different, like the sun and moon, the stars and skies. Some are male, some are female. This is male and female. Some people want to say that it was male and female, not male or female. So it's male and it's female, and everything in between. And I want to say, it doesn't say that either. It says male and female. That is biologically true. I'm sorry, please don't be offended by me. Please don't. Biologically, there is not an alternative. You are chromosomes XY or XX. That's the only option. There aren't uh, mysterious things in between. You are either male or female biologically. Reproductively, it's true. Now, there'll come a day when science is so progressed that they will be able to make people out of what is already existing, a dolly-the-sheep type experience. But for thousands of years, ever since time ever began, right up till now, there is only one way a child is born, And that is by what is male and what is female coming together. Out of the overflow of that relationship of love and intimacy, life is born just like God. Right? That is the only way. That's the only way that we reproduce. So it's biologically true, but it is reproductively true. And fourthly, it is with purpose. We are here on the earth to represent that king. Yeah, That's why we're here. We're here to rule and to reign. What does it say? It says, be, he's blessed them and so said, be fruitful and increase. Take charge. We have purpose in this life. It's not an excuse for exploitation of the world's resources. It is the extension of God's rule and reign through people. We are thus dignified. You see, we are not just animals. We're not just animals. Desmond Morris, in the 1960s, wrote the book, The Naked Ape. That's who we are. We're just a naked ape. We're just a hairless ape. Are we? No, we're not. We're made in the image of God. But we're not gods either. We are not masters of our own destiny either. We are created in his image. We are not self-determining. We are created beings. So that's chapter 1. Chapter 2, they just starts with the seventh day of creation. And let's not forget it. There was a seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day. Was he really tired? Is that the problem? So busy for six days, God wore himself out, really tired on the seventh day, needed a rest. Of course not. That's not what was going on here. He was setting a pattern in the world for people. The human beings made on the sixth day, first thing he did, rested They haven't done anything yet. First thing they do, rest. Why? Because that rest is about worship of God. Are we homo sapiens? Yes, we are. But we are also homo adori. We are those who are called to worship. And we all worship something. It doesn't matter if you're religious, non-religious, it doesn't matter what part of the world you're from, you're worshipping something, because that is how you are made. You see, this worldview, even just in one chapter, this worldview is very different from this worldview... This worldview, which we just talked about, about being created, being in the image of God, all those things, is very different from this worldview, which says human beings, we are just an inconsequential mammal in an insignificant planet on a low order solar system. And that's what we are. And you go, no, we're not. You know, this world says, look, there is no reason for life. There is no reason why we're here. Therefore, we have to make whatever we can of it. So let's just pursue love, life, and happiness. Anything we can to make something of this life. That's what this life is all about. That's very different from this world. Very different from this world, this point of view. So therefore, there's more to say. There's more to say. Should we go to chapter 2? Shall we do that? We've got time, haven't we? Okay, chapter 2. Chapter 2 is the story of Adam and Eve. And you'll see their little picture come up uh, behind me in a moment. So it's a, it, rather than the panorama of Genesis 1, Genesis 2 is a, a specific view of Adam and Eve and the garden. And it notes that Adam came first. Eve wasn't there. Adam was there first. First chapter, very equal, made uh, as equal with one another. In the second chapter, Adam was first. And that's a significant thing according to the New Testament. It doesn't talk about being made in the image or likeness of God. What it talks about in chapter 2 is that God made Adam out of the clay of the earth, came face to face with him like a hongi, and breathed his life. Every human being has the breath of life in them. It's what sets them apart. Something of the breath, the spirit of God in them that sets them apart. And what was shocking about chapter 2 is that in chapter 1, God said, this is good, 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 this is is very good. And in chapter 2, he says, this isn't good. And what was it that wasn't very good? That Adam was on his own. And so God says, we need to find a suitable helper for him. Please don't think Batman and Robin. That is not a helpful way of looking at suitable helper. Oh, Robin is a great guy, but he's not Batman. You know, it's not the way to look at it. What the words mean are opposites and equal. It, the, the English word we would perhaps use is counterpart. Adam needed a counterpart, his opposite and his equal. God is talked about as being our helper. There's nothing inferior about the word helper there at all. So we had a parade of animals and all the animals were brought before Adam and were, was what a suitable helper found amongst all these animals and there was... And bear and a lion and a tiger and a blue whale and a goldfish, and none of them were his opposite and equal. What was the point of this parade? Why did God bother? Did God not know that none of these would be suitable? Of course he knew. this was for Adam's benefit. It's for our benefit. because God was going to do something really precious, really vital, so special that, this is what he had to go through, this whole procedure of Adam realizing there was nothing here, there was no one here for him. So God took some of his rib or his side, and out of this side he made and fashioned the woman. And Adam woke up from this surgery, saw a naked woman beside him, and he opened his eyes and he went, "Wow! <laughs> this is it! I found it! This is what this is! What does he say? This is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out." Of man. We don't talk about flesh and bone, we talk about flesh and blood in English. And it's talking about a new kinship relationship, a new close family relationship. And it all leads up to this. This is why we have Genesis chapter 2, not as an alternative or opposing narrative to chapter 1, but because God is establishing marriage. To verse 24, this is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Three steps, you leave. Ancient world, when this was first written down, the time of Moses, perhaps, this was, this was quite con- cu- culturally countering, countercultural. Men did not leave their mother and father. Women came into the man's household. No, says God, that is not how it's to be. Men, you're to take initiative. You were made first, you have a responsibility to step up. Men, leave your family. You should change your way of life. You leave something in order to be able to what? Cleave, it says in the old version. It is you, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife. It's a covenant word. It means like sticking two pieces of paper together with glue. You stick them together. If you to tear them apart, it rips them. It's a covenant word. There's an order here. You leave, you leave one form of relationship, one way of life. You you cleave, you are, are united in covenant with your wife, and then what? And they became one flesh. What, having sex together? Yeah, absolutely. With all the bits that match. They they, they they were one flesh. But it's not just the sex. It is what they have called recently a comprehensive union, emotional, covenantal, spiritual, bodily, one flesh relationship. That's what marriage is all about. It's not a fairy tale. Oh, I found my prince. No, it's not a fairy tale. Oh, they all lived happily ever after. It's not a fairy tale. It's not Marrying my best friend? Oh, he's my best friend. No, it's not about marrying your best friend. Get another best friend. This is about marriage. It's not about finding a soulmate. Oh, they. My, oh, she's my soulmate. No, it's not about finding a soulmate. It's about being married, being one flesh. It's not a contractual arrangement. I will be married to you for as long as love endures. What? That's not. It's not a contract. It's a covenant. It's not even about falling in love. It's not even about, we saw each other across a crowded room, our eyes met, we fell in love, oh, now we're married. It's not even about that. Don't buy into Hollywood rubbish. Sometimes love comes after. Quite commonly, love comes after. It's a a. A covenant is a comprehensive union, a covenant commitment between a man and a woman to be united at every level. That's what marriage is. That's what it's all about. That's why this is our frame. It's not the world's frame. This is a very different way of viewing it. Now... I'll uh, just to cover it very quickly. Chapter three happens. What happens in chapter three is often called the fall. And this is a really important part of our frame. Because what we see in the fall in chapter three is creation is perfect yet fallen. Creation is wonderful yet corrupted. Creation is God given, but is now evil is present. That's our worldview. Is that it is both beautifully created and horribly corrupted by us. That's our worldview. See, what happened in G- Genesis 3 as the snake tempted Eve and Adam was this was an attempt to eat the fruit of the, knowledge of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. It was an attempt to be God, to replace God, to make our own decisions, to go the way we want to go, to decide what is right and wrong, what is good and bad for ourselves. What is the world's biggest sin? It's Pride. Pride is putting ourselves in the middle of my life and saying, I'm right. That's what the fall is all about. And so it's a terrible thing. Of course, what happened in the fall is blame shifted. The man blamed the woman, the woman blamed the snake, and the snake didn't have a leg to stand on. (laughs) Right? That's what happened. And what happened is that God stepped in and he had to say, he had say, hang on, there are consequences to this. They're often called the curses, but the only thing that's cursed is the snake. But there were consequences, and there were consequences at the deepest level of who the woman was and who the man was. For the woman, he said, you will have pain in childbirth. At her deepest level, there were consequences. And he said... Your desire will be for your husband, but he will rule over you. What's that all about? What it's about is this, that now, not only is that relationship with God broken and spoiled, but the relationship between people is broken and spoiled. Now there is always going to be an antagonism between men and women, between husband and wife, an attempt to control, either by manipulation or by domination. It's always going to be there. And that's always so sad. And for the man at his deepest level, he too faced consequences. And his was about the work of his hand. And God said, It's not going to be easy now, work. It's now by the sweat of your brow that you are going to be able to raise the crops and make your way in the world. And this is true. That is a big part of our worldview that there is evil, there is a fall, there are consequences. And our world would say, yes, there's problems in the world, but what we'll do is we'll increase technology. We'll improve everybody's wealth. We'll, we'll have better political systems, more democratic. We'll, we'll introduce tolerance at every level. We'll do better education, and that will deal with the world's problems. And we look at the world's problems and we say, no, it's far more fundamental than that. Those things will never deal with it. Something much deeper, much more insignificant has got to happen. Hey, you've been ever so good. I'm about like 10% 10 through what I need to do. Why don't you just turn to each other and just say to the person next to you, you're looking lovely this morning. So just just turn to the person next to you. Are you feeling built up? Good. You're all looking lovely. You absolutely are. The Bible shifts at this point. And we're not going to go through every chapter now. We really aren't. We're going to, we're going to jump, right? But the Bible shifts, and it shifts from the whole of humanity down to one family, Abraham's family. Abraham, who had Isaac, who had Jacob. Jacob changed his name to Israel. Israel had 12 children. His 12 sons became uh, the children of Israel, the tribes of Israel. It is the nation of Israel. Tom Wright, who is a wonderful author, he said, and this is a a quote I'll come back to at some point, the story of humanity is recapitulated in the story of Israel. And the story of Israel is reenacted in the story of Christ. We'll come on to that in a minute. But what we're saying here is that the story of humanity is now worked out again in the story of Israel, in the Bible. And what you find is this: that 400 years the people of Israel were in slavery in Egypt, and a man called Moses came along. and God acted for their behalf and took them out of slavery, rescued them, they left, and then they went into the desert and God made a covenant with them. Does this sound familiar? They left, made a covenant, yeah? And God said, I will dwell amongst these people. And by his power, he came and dwelt amongst his people. Then he said to these people, we are now in this relationship. Very like a marriage relationship. We're now in this relationship, right? Right. I'm going to give you some teaching now, which is going to tell you how you can work this out. And we call it the law or Torah. And he taught them all kinds of things Ten Commandments, quite famous, summary. But they're not rules about how you get right with God. No, 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 no. This is a people who are saved, they have left. They're in covenant. God has made an agreement, a lasting permanent covenant with them. He is dwelling amongst his people, intimate, closely with them, and he's saying, this is how you can flourish. This is how you can live. This is what's important for you. Deal with this. Don't deal with this. Touch that. Don't touch that. This is important. That isn't. That's why this stuff is so important to us. So the Ten Commandments come along. What's number seven? Don't commit adultery. Don't break the marriage covenant. Don't don't do that. Don't do that. Number 10, what's number 10? Do not cover. Do not cover your neighbor's house. Do not cover your neighbor's wife. Paul says, I was fine with all the law until I got to number 10, and then it dealt with my heart, and then I was undone. All right? This is what the law does. This is what it's for. And specifically, there's something about sexual relations that comes up in the law. Leviticus chapter 18, people don't like to read it. But it's there, and it's really important. In Leviticus 18, God sets out what it's to be like, your sexual ethic. And he starts by saying, don't be like the nations around you. Don't be like the, the Egyptians, and don't be like the Canaanites to the place you're going. You are to live counterculturally. You're not to behave sexually in the way that those people behaved. You are to be a different people. And he says, these are the people you're not allowed to have sex with. And he goes through them. You're not allowed to have sex with close relatives. Why do we have that enshrined in our law? Because it's in the Bible. That's why we have it. It's Leviticus 18, don't have sex with close relatives. That includes your in-laws. It includes your step relations. And there are many permutations that it goes through. Then it's very clear. No sexual relationships, man with man. Don't do it. Don't be like the nations. You are to live like this. That's not how it's to be for you. No sexual relationships with animals. No what we call bestiality. Men, don't go and have sex with animals. Women, don't present yourself to an animal to have sex with it. Just don't go there. Don't give your daughter to prostitution, is what Leviticus 18 says. Come on, don't bypass all of this. Don't don't go there. Don't go there. Now, why? Why is Israel... Demanded of them that they live so counterculturally. Well, number one, these are a redeemed people of the Creator God, and how they are to live must outwork creation norms. That's one reason. The second reason is this that their God is loving and good and just, but He's also holy. Not only is He holy, He is holy, holy. Not only is He holy, holy, He is holy, holy. Holy, holy. And how they are to work out their sexual ethic as a people is in a place of purity, of unmixedness, of wholeheartedness. They are to live out mind, body, will, soul, all of them. That's why. Third reason is that sexual impurity in the Old Testament, and it is today, is very closely linked to idolatry. When the people of Israel saw an idol and went up to worship, part of the worship experience of Baal and Ashtoreth and all of those in Canaanite was a sexual experience. They went up there for orgies. They went up there to meet up with the shrine prostitutes. They were literally seduced into worshipping other gods. It's very closely linked in the Old Testament, idolatry and sexual immorality. God presented himself as husband to these people, and he expects them to act that out as a faithful wife. You find all the way through the prophets, the prophets saying, you have been unfaithful as a wife to God. Sexual purity and impurity and idolatry are very closely linked. Fourthly, the law protected the most vulnerable from exploitation. That included women, that included children, the poor and foreigners all of whom, even today, are the ones who are sexually exploited. They are the ones that you find in pornography. They are the ones who are drawn into the adult industry, into prostitution. Why? Because that's a good lifestyle choice for them? No, it's because they're being exploited, because they're vulnerable. That's what's going on here. And the law protected such people. And the fifth reason is that the law was always temporary, pointing towards something greater that would come in Christ, So the sexual ethic that was set out in the law was how the people of Israel lived their lives for hundreds of years. And at the time of the Greeks and Romans, at the time of Jesus, when they were around with all their failures as a people, they still tried to work out this level of sexual ethic. Jewish communities scattered over the ancient Near East, They did not participate in idol worship. They didn't, with all its feasts and its orgies and its shrine prostitution, they didn't go there. And they didn't participate in the Greek and Roman gymnasiums where naked men bathed and exercised and sexually gratified each other in that environment. It was normal, but they didn't participate in it all. The Jewish people didn't participate in the, uh, the way that the tr- slaves were treated in the ancient Greek and Roman world. Slaves were there to be used sexually, and they did. Whether that was other women, whether that was men, whether that was children. Ch- all the slaves were, uh, were treated about it, and the Jewish people didn't behave like that. It's, it's an established fact, literary and archaeological evidence is out there to say that in the Greek and Roman world, same-sex marriage was there. It was part of society. And according to some Greek philosophers, the greatest form of love and the greatest form of sexual love was that between an older man and a teenage boy. that was the environment that the Jews were living a life different. And Jesus was born into that environment. The Jewish families of the first century were very family-orientated. They married exclusively from amongst their own people. Children were born and nurtured and educated. that's why some of the Romans and Greeks were attracted to them as a people and became God-fearers. And Jesus was born into this. What did Tom Wright say? The story of humanity is recapitulated in the story of Israel, and the story of Israel is reenacted in the story of Jesus. And this was true for Jesus, that he maintains the sexual ethics of his history, of his people. When he was pushed on the hot topic of sexual ethic of his day, which was divorce, Jesus went back to the oldest part of the Bible, back to Genesis 1 and 2, and said, this is how it's to be. Matthew 19, read it. Jesus restated it. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and they shall be one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man put asunder. Jesus said that. He also went on to say, by the way, in that same chapter, some are born eunuchs, some are made eunuchs by choice, and some embrace sexlessness for the sake of the kingdom of God. He said that in the same chapter. It's worth a read. Jesus didn't move away from his sexual ethic of his Jewish background. He was single and therefore a celibate man. Sexual unity and intimacy is the preserve of the marriage between one man and one woman. Committing adultery, which both husband and wife could do, was definitely a no-no as far as Jesus was concerned. If anything, what Jesus did was to intensify the law. He said, you have heard it said, do not commit adultery. I tell you that if you even look at a woman lustfully, you have committed adultery in your heart. He didn't... There are some around who would want to say... We don't follow the Bible in that old-fashioned, ridiculous way. No, 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 no. We follow Jesus, and it's all light and love. Now, hang on a minute. You look closely. You look closely, and Jesus didn't move from the sexual ethic of the Old Testament. He didn't move away from that. That is what he anticipated for his followers. See, the reality is we come to Christ as sinners. Every part of our heart and our lives has been tainted by sin, We come to Jesus as broken people. We come to him with our shame. And in Jesus we are loved and accepted. God loves you so much that he accepts you just as you are. And he loves you so much he doesn't leave you where you are. You understand what I'm saying? We come to Christ and we are transformed from inside out to out. The old has gone, the new has come. We are a new creation, a new order of people. You're born again. Your heart has changed. The Holy Spirit fills you. We leave our way of life. God makes covenant with us and then he intimately dwells within us by his Holy Spirit. Sound familiar? Of course it's familiar. This is the framework in which we understand and see the world. Some things change immediately. I've got a friend, he said, he said, the moment I became a Christian, I just stopped swearing. It's, uh, something just happened, changed in my life. I swore for ages and still struggle at times when put under pressure. Well, it's, it's something you wrestle with. Some things change. Some things we work out as faithful disciples in the community of believers, right? This is how it happens. So you turn to Ephesians chapter 4. And Paul says, this is how it works out. This is how, this is. sorry, are we okay for time? You're right, you're right for two more minutes, yeah? Paul says, this is how it works out. Amongst you, he says, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Do you, you understand? Is it rules and regulations? Oh, have I got to do, no, 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 no. You are a new people now. And this is how you work it out. You don't have any, not even a hint of sexual immorality. Nothing It. Nor should there be any obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of God and of Christ. Let no one deceive you with empty words, because... Of such things, God wrath comes to those who are disobedient. I've completely run out of time. Here I going to say our, our sexual ethic as a Christian community is utterly countercultural. Utterly countercultural. That is not our way. Tom Wright, again, he's a wonderful scholar, he said this we need to remind ourselves that the entire biblical sexual ethic is deeply counterintuitive. All human beings, some of the time, and some human beings most of the time, have deep, heartfelt longings for sexual intimacy and gratification, multiple partners, pornography, whatever, which do not reflect the Creator's best intention for His human creatures, intentions through which new wisdom and flourishing will come to birth. Sexual restraint is mandatory for all, difficult for most, extremely challenging for some. God is gracious and merciful, but this never means that His creational standards really don't really matter after all. Yeah? Now, what is going to happen right in your brains right now is you're going to have a hundred questions. One of those, which I have prepared for, but don't have time for, is, does this mean that if I am a single person and a Christian, I am committed to a life of celibacy? Answer? Yes, you are. And do you know what? it can be one of the most fulfilled ways of life that there has ever been. Who is the most fulfilled person that the world has ever seen? The Lord Jesus Christ. And guess what? He was single and celibate. Same for the Apostle Paul. Paul actually goes on to one place and says, Do you know, I wish you were all like I am, and he's unmarried. He said, because there is so much more to life when you haven't got the restraints and the responsibilities of what it means to be a married person. Life without that distraction, my friends, can be even more fulfilling. It's true of Jesus, it's true of Paul, it's true of Mother Teresa, it's true of John Stott, it's true of countless people through the Christian age. Hollywood and the like would give you a lie. That is that if you are not sexually active, that you are not romantically involved at this point, then you are somehow rather an unfilled person or somehow rather repressed. I want to say to you, that is an absolute lie. It's just not true at any level. And you know it's not true. You know it's not true because all you have to do is look around at the Western world. Look around at the sex-obsessed, sex-saturated world, and do you see satisfied people? Do you see people who are sexually and romantically settled in their lives? Do you? No, you don't. See, it's not true. What we see is emptiness, grasping, exploitation, discontent, abuse. We don't see the sort of fulfilled life that Jesus led or he calls us disciples to. Another question that will come to your head, and I'm not even going to try and answer this. You'll have to come this afternoon. All right? Can, you be, can I be gay and a Christian? Is it possible for me to be same-sex attracted and still be a Christian? Is that possible? Well, come along this afternoon and I'll give you the answer. <laughs> Brothers and sisters, we come empty-handed as broken people lost in the universe, enslaved in our sin. We come to Jesus and discover that he is the pearl of greatest price and we give up everything in order to have him. We come to the cross of Jesus and find love and forgiveness and peace with God. We come to the cross of Jesus and we see a pattern of how to live, to take up our cross daily and follow him. And we, with our brothers and sisters, with the power of the Holy Spirit within and God's word to lead us and to guide us, we find grace to live for Jesus every day in this world, which is at odds with God's kingdom. And we long for Christ's return the resurrection of the dead, and the eternal life in the new heavens and the new earth where all of our brokenness and all of our emptiness and all of our dysfunction will be put right. Can we pray? Heavenly Father, I thank you for these wonderful people.